you're crippled by this secret. You're just crippled by it. So it takes a lot of courage for men and women who are post-abortive to finally tell that first person. Welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. There is help available for post-abortive women and men. Unfortunately, people are often unaware or they believe they don't need the help. Victoria Robinson with Reassemble works with people like this all the time. Reassemble is a recovery ministry for people who have experienced abortion and are struggling with the aftermath. Victoria, thank you for joining us today. How great is the need for post-abortive care? Oh my gosh, it's huge, Scott. Uh, we, we know of 74 plus million abortions since Roe v. Wade since 1973 was established and praise God now it's been overturned. But so in that time from 73 to now, we know of about 74 million abortions, as I said. I am convinced, as well as many others, that it's much higher than that. So when you look at that figure and you think about the women, now, of course, some of those women had multiple abortions, but let's just be very um, you know, conservative with our numbers. Let's just say 140 million women that have had abortions, men who've participated in an abortion, or even men who didn't know she was pregnant, begged her not to do it, um, whether they talked her into it, manipulated, lied to her, whatever the case is. People affected by abortion, that's tens and tens of millions of people. I've always been convinced, Scott, that when enough people get healed from the abortion trauma they've experienced, it's the backdoor approach to ending abortion, no matter what the laws are. Because people that have not gone through abortion recovery are hurting so badly that it's like walking around with a, a tape or a mask over their face and they can't talk about it. They don't speak about it. They, they don't tell anybody about it. So if a neighbor or even someone in their family or a coworker brings it up, they're just sitting there nodding their head because they don't want to confess to them yeah, I had an abortion, or you don't want to do that because this is what happened to me, because that would mean telling their story. So if 10% of those people found healing through abortion recovery, that would be an army of people speaking out about the truth about how an abortion affected their life. So that's why the, the need is great. I have been busier, Scott, in the last three years than in the last 26 years of my career doing abortion recovery. Why? I believe because of Roe v. Wade. I believe talk, there's so much talk everywhere about abortion with the last election. That was a hot topic. It's everywhere with movies that have come out, like the unplanned movie that was about abortion. Um, so more and more people are talking about this issue. So those post-abortive people, and post-abortive means they have had an abortion in their past, they're hearing this and it's triggering them as the word that people use. And that's why they're contacting people like me and saying, okay, you won't tell anybody. How can you help me? I can't do this anymore. I'm having anxiety attacks. I'm having panic attacks. Every time I hear the word, everywhere I look, I'm bombarded with that abortion issue. And it's taking me back and reminding me of my past. And so that's why I have waiting lists right now of people wanting, needing abortion recovery help. I've never seen anything like it. And so that's what I attribute it to, Scott, is there's more and more talk about abortion. There's more and more talk about it on social media. And 
it's everywhere. Even shows that are glorifying abortion, you know, like uh, Grey's Anatomy, apparently they're glorifying abortion. The different shows that are out there that I refused to watch. Um, And they're making it, even those kinds of ignorant people who are doing such things, who don't know what they're talking about. These people that are watching this are saying, okay, I must be crazy. It's true. I'm crazy. I'm the only one who feels like that was the worst decision of my life. And they're convinced they're the only one because of the propaganda out there trying to convince them that if you if you feel bad about having an abortion, there's something wrong with you. And that's a lie. I think you're on to something, because what you're saying is if we could empower these folks to share their true experiences and their true feelings, then the truth about abortion would get out. So that answers one of the questions I was going to ask you, which was why you think the other side is so eager to silence women and men when it when it comes to those who are struggling with their abortions. Oh, Scott, that's such an easy answer, because the abortion industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And if people knew the truth about how an abortion traumatizes The women who choose, the fathers who allow them to choose, say nothing or talk them into it, it would be bad for their bottom line. So they need to make sure to keep the mouth shut of those hurting and convince them. Scott, I had a woman who came through a retreat just a year ago. Now, this was a reassemble retreat that I do a weekend. And everyone coming has one thing in common for sure. They've all chosen abortion. We start on Thursday. True story, this happened, and it's not the only time it's ever happened. On Saturday, this particular woman in the group, she just started smiling. She said, I have something I need to say. I said, absolutely. This is, you know, it's open community. We all, everybody has an open floor. And she goes, on Thursday, when we were riding in the van together, because we, this particular event, we met at at a, at a, location and got in a sprinter van and drove two hours to the retreat center. But in the car, no, in the van, nobody talked about, I told my leaders, do not talk about the retreat. We're not talking about what we're about to do. They're already nervous. Let's just get to know each other and have fun. And that's what we did. So for two hours, no one mentioned abortion. So she said the entire trip, all she kept thinking was, no, I'm the only one. I know I'm the only one. I know there's no way that girl had an abortion. There's no way that girl, she seems too happy. And there's, she said, the, the whole time I'm convincing myself that I'm the only one in this van that's going here that's had an abortion. So she's saying this and she goes, now I know how asinine that is. I said, because you do know this is a reassemble retreat for women who've had abortions. And she said, yes, but that's what we convince ourselves of. We convince ourselves of the most ridiculous things. And she said this back to your first question or the one you just asked me. She said, Victoria, for 18, 19 years, every time I went to research at the library or when the, or on the internet, Is this why I do this? Because I had two abortions. Is this why I do this? Is this why I smother my children? Is this why I go through depression? Is this why I'm this way and I have no self-confidence anymore? Is this why I hate myself? All these things. Is this why I'm considering, I've considered killing myself? 
Everything that came up said, no, 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 no. There's no correlation to any of these things and abortion. Because the multi-billion dollar abortion industry even makes sure that someone who's had an abortion does not find out the truth because then the gig is up. So you just went over quite the list there of, uh, let's call them symptoms or or, or uh, consequences. I'm trying to find the right word, but the experiences that people go through. Um, talk about that a little bit more. I mean, because some would seem to be obvious, uh, maybe, you know, on how you uh, would, you, you mentioned like smothering your your other children or things like that, but uh, some not so obvious. What are, what are some of the things that you've seen? Well, I can tell you what they are, but easier. This is the stuff I hear from everyone. Is this why I have commitment issues? That comes a lot from the men. Is this why I'm a workaholic? Could this be why I can't bond with my living children? All these things are the answers. Yes. Is this why I have an alcohol or drug problem? Yes. You're numbing the pain. And they have these light bulb moments themselves. They go back to when they started in these bad behaviors. And it was always nine out of 10 times after the abortion, or if they had those issues before, they're compounded after the abortion. Is this why I had live in fear that God's going to take one of my children for what I did to get back at me? Is this why I feel rejection from God, rejection from others? If they knew the truth, they wouldn't want to be my friend. They wouldn't want me around their children because they wouldn't trust me around their children if they knew I killed my own. All of the guilt, the remorse, the regret, the telling yourself you're not good enough. Look, I am I got involved in abusive relationships, Scott, after my abortion because I thought I deserved it. I thought I deserved to be cheated on and knocked around and called bad names and have my abortion thrown in my face when he was angry. Because I deserved all of that abuse because I killed my own baby. And then I found out the truth, that God still loved me, that Jesus forgives. He can redeem your life. He can reconcile you to the Father. All of the things I told myself that I allowed the enemy to tell me, that I told myself. Sometimes we blame the devil for everything, and we're our own worst enemy. All of those things were lies. So do I think every problem from someone having an abortion I would say the majority of them afterwards, yes. I had a guy recently who told me, my, I was married, Victoria, in college with my wife. She was in law school. I was in business school. We found out we were pregnant. It wasn't the right time for us, but it was like, okay, we're married, you know, it's a, it, or a few years earlier than we wanted. So I didn't think anything of it until she came home one night and said, I'm not having this baby. I'm not going through this pregnancy. I'm not quitting law school and giving up my law career. So he said, I kept my mouth shut and said nothing because I thought it's her body, her choice. I tell men today, Scott, it isn't her body, buddy. So open your mouth. But we've emasculated men in this country to the degree they stand in the corner and keep their mouth shut because they don't have the courage or the you know what's to speak up. And that's what we need to see more of is men speaking up. And here's what he said to me. This was very recently. He said he was crying. He said, I'm a 59-year-old man, Vic. We got divorced a year later, which nine out of 10 times where there's an abortion involved, couples don't make it. It's too traumatic of an experience to stay together and be reminded of what you did. So they broke up. He never had more children. 
He's been single for 32 years. He's had women he's loved, but he said, I've never been able to pull the trigger and commit. He's been a womanizer. He drinks a lot. And he said, my parents are now both gone. His mother had died recently. I have no siblings. And the only legacy I would have left behind would have been that child. And I allowed her to kill my child. Now, whether or not it would have made a difference, Victoria, had I opened my mouth, I live with that because I'll never know. I want to dig in um, to the impact on men here, here in just a second. But as I hear you talking and I hear about the experience and the emotions that some of these people deal with, one word comes to mind, and that is isolation. You know, you're convinced, like you said, you're convinced I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one experiencing this, um, which then can lead to isolation. And that, then, then that's a serious problem once people feel like they're the only ones and they're alone. What's the answer? I mean, what, how then do we, how do you encourage uh, people, men and women, to take that first step to, to actually start talking about it? Take a deep breath. Find someone you trust. If it's me, a lot of times I'm the first person they ever tell because I'm a stranger. They don't really know me. They know I'm involved in this work, so they have no problem telling me. And they realize when they say it the first time, the healing starts. Because, Scott, I couldn't even look in a mirror for 10 years alone in my bathroom and say to myself, you had an abortion. I couldn't even get the words out. And I would be by myself. You're crippled by this secret. You're just crippled by it. So it takes a lot of courage for men and women who are post-abortive to finally tell that first person. I encourage churches to bring people like me in to speak because they're sitting in your churches, pastor. One out of three people has been affected by an abortion. Let's let's pause there for a second, because I was thinking about that exactly. I was thinking about, OK, you're in that situation. You want to share. You want to talk. Um, you've mentioned, you know, the forgiveness, and the acceptance of Jesus Christ. He still loves you and accepts you regardless. But I can see a big hesitancy and worry that you're going to go to a local church or whatever. You're going to be judged for what you did. I can understand that. I mean, unfortunately, that happens too often. I would that would that might deter me. I mean, I could see how that'd be a real problem. It is a real problem, Scott. You know, um, this might blow your mind. It may not. I've had pastors who look at me and say, I would love to bring you to my church, Victoria. I'd love to have you come and speak. But I got a lot of pro-choice people in my church, and I think you would offend them. I think you'd make them uncomfortable. I think there's people in the church that have had abortions that you're going to trigger them and make them feel worse. And here's what I say to those pastors. Because they're not they're not a lot of bad pastors. They Some of them are genuinely making decisions thinking it's the best decision. Some of them are just cowards, if I'm being honest. Um, but what I say to those pastors, I don't try to determine which category they're in, is let me ask you this, Pastor. First question, you said you have pro-choice people sitting in your pews, and you're afraid they can't hear about Jesus if they stop coming back. Why don't you ask yourself, why do you have pro-choice people sitting in your church? Apparently, you're not preaching against sin abortion, adultery, whatever the sin is from your pulpit, if they're sitting in your pews, continuing the behavior. 
So maybe you should ask yourself and let the Lord convict you that right there is where you're messing up. That's number one. And if you have that pro-choice person that comes to you and says, I can't believe you let this pro-life speaker come into our church and talk against abortion and share her abortion story, and they paid for the carpet in your church and you're so afraid because they're big tithers, here's my recommendation, Pastor. Ask them to pick the carpet up on their way out and take it with them. Because one day you're going to have to answer for keeping your mouth shut from that pulpit. Second thing. You think you're going to hurt those people in your pulpit that have had abortions? Okay, and I get that. And you, that may truly be your heart. But let me tell you this as a post-abortive person and a person who's been doing this work for 27 years who has met thousands of people who are post-abortive. They are sitting in your church week after week and they are starving. They are dying for someone to tell them about getting help. They are starving for their pastor that they that they follow to say to them, if you've had an abortion, God loves you. There is help available for you. And I'm bringing in a pro-life speaker who's going to tell you all about it because they come to me and say, we've never had anyone talk about this issue. Oh, my gosh. You mean there's help for me? There's somewhere I can go for help. So they're sitting in your pulpits. So if they're pro-choice. You better start talking to them about why, as a Christian, being pro-choice is an oxymoron and the biggest contradiction I've ever heard. And the second thing is they're sitting there just begging God, please, Lord, show me how I can be healed from my sin of abortion. And it's in that position that I could see, you know, if you're, if you're, let's just say at this point, a woman in that, in that situation, um, you're just, I would see the fear of just being judged by whoever you tell at church, you know, they're going to condemn you. That to me, I, I could see that as being a real hurdle to someone taking that step, especially within a faith community. And that's why you've got to give them the courage to talk to you. They may not be, you don't, I'm not saying a pastor should say, those of you who've had an abortion, come to the altar and let us pray for you. No one's coming. I'm talking about open the conversation up for them to feel it's safe to talk about. There's always going to be, look, I get judged to this day, Scott. I spoke at an event um, a couple years ago here in Nashville. Governor Bill Lee was there speaking as well, and they invited me to come and share. And there was a man in the back screaming that I was a murderer and I had no business speaking. Get her off that stage. Now, I had two choices here, Scott. Off the stage like a coward. And maybe I had would have had I not gone through healing 20 some years ago. He kept yelling from the back and I saw the crowd. It was pretty packed looking around like, oh, my gosh, what is she going to do? What is she going to do? I looked at this crowd of hundreds of people and thought, OK, Vic, you got two choices here. You know, as well as I, you know, I knew as well as the next person involved in pro-life that one out of three of these people is post-abortive. If I keep my mouth shut and I don't address this guy, they're sitting there thinking, see, even she can't say anything because she knows he's right. She knows he's right. We're horrible people. We deserve to die. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve mercy. So I addressed him in a very loving way. And they ended up having to escort him out because he would not start keep screaming at me. Afterwards, I can't tell you how many people walked up to me. 
with tears and said, thank you for saying something to him because I'm one of those people. I'm one of those. So we've got to show them the same grace and mercy God's shown us, whatever the sin and anyone. So, so there are those people and this guy, God love him. He thought he was doing the right thing. He's probably one of those people that holds signs up and calls women murderers that are walking into abortion clinics. And look, I'm not saying if that's what you feel called to do, and that's what God's called you to do, go have at it. But I am saying this as a post-abortive woman, those signs did nothing to get me to want to run to the church for grace and mercy. They made me want to run away. So there are more people in the church, Scott, that want to extend grace and mercy to people that have had abortions than there aren't. So I just say, wipe the feet off, you know, just like the Bible talks about. Don't let them be the ones who cripple you because there are many more people who want to help. I've got a waiting list of people who want to be involved as volunteers at my reassemble retreat, Scott, who haven't had abortions, but they have such a heart for wanting to do something to help these women and these men who are hurting. Sitting with Victoria Robinson from Reassemble Life, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the impact of abortion on men. We don't talk about that very often. We'll do that when we come back here on Dear Jane. Are you a pregnancy center or pro-life organization that wants to grow your life-saving mission in a way that effectively reaches women who need help? At Choose Life Promo, our ultimate goal is to help organizations empower women to choose life. We take our design and marketing expertise to the next level, creating apparel, videos, and other items that are eye-catching and attractive, ripe with accurate information specifically for women that need support and spread awareness about your pregnancy center to donors and potential supporters. At Choose Life Promo, our mission is to impact our culture, to choose life through communication strategies grounded in both research and biblical values. We want to give you promotional items that inspire donations and also educate the abortion-minded woman about your pregnancy center so she can receive the care and support she needs. Saving lives is always in style. Learn more at ChooseLifePromo.com. And we're back with Victoria Robinson with Reassemble, and we're talking about the impact of abortion. Uh, We've talked largely about the impact on post-abortive women, but something that is not talked about a lot is the impact on men. Um, you, you have dealt with that quite a bit too, haven't you? I have, Scott, and I, I don't ever do an interview or speak at an in event, whether it's a pregnancy center banquet or fundraising banquet or events for Turning Point or wherever I go, a church, et cetera, without speaking about the men. And I, I'm so glad that we're going to talk about that because it's important. This is one of the, I believe, issues in the pro-life arena that enough people are not talking about. We've made it all about women. First, the unborn child, which of course it's about them, number one. They're the ones who lose their life. Um, And then we've made it about the women. But we've kind of said it's the men's fault. You know, they're the reason why. And look, there's something to be said about many, many women, probably the majority would not walk into an abortion clinic if they had the support of the man, not him saying, get rid of it, get rid of it. And he's freaking out, you know, and telling him then he regrets it later. But that's why most 
a lot, a majority of the women who are walking in just need that man, the father to say, we'll figure this out. I, I don't, I don't know how it's going to look, but I'm not going anywhere. When I wrote my, my first book, they lied to us, Scott, I wanted to make sure that the father of my aborted child knew about the book coming out since we had run and we were still running in a lot of the same circles. And I just didn't want him to think, oh my gosh, she wrote a book and told everybody about our story. But I wanted him to, to be aware that I took any identifying factors about him out of the book. So I called him. We hadn't talked in 10 years. And I got his number somehow. I don't remember that detail. And I said, hey, it's me. And he heard my voice. He recognized it immediately. And he just started to weep. He was talking, Scott, but I couldn't understand what he was saying. He was crying so hard. So when he composed himself, this is what he said. Vic, I've been waiting for this call for over a decade to beg you for forgiveness for what I made you do. It has haunted me all these years. I've been in therapy dealing with it for eight years now. I should have protected you and our child. I failed you both. Can you ever forgive me? And in that moment, I realized two things, Scott. Number one, all these years, I believed he went on with his life and forgot all about me and what we did. And although I walked in that abortion clinic by myself and laid on that table by myself and allowed them to kill my baby, I could have gotten up and I didn't. I still put most of the blame on him, which was wrong. I had to take full responsibility myself. And that, that comes through the healing process. So the first thing I realized was, oh my gosh, he has been thinking about this. He's in therapy. He's dealing... I'm not the only one who's been traumatized by that choice. And that brought me some kind of comfort. As I don't know if that sounds weird or not, but it made me feel validated mm-hmm. to, a, to a degree. The second thing I realized, Scott, was men are hurting too. These babies have fathers. These fathers are hurting. And I have I made it a point from that moment on that I would not ever speak anywhere without talking about the men. God created women, Scott, to nurture. You know, that's our, that's just natural for us. We nurtured. And I I get it. Some people will say to me, well, so not all women are born with that. Okay, whatever. The majority of women are born with that nurturing instinct in them. Our children fall down. We want to run after them. You know, my grandson, um, Shepard is eight and he fell off his bike recently. And I was like, are you okay? He goes, Mimi, I'm fine. Why do you always get all upset when one of us falls down? It is what we do. (laughs) Um, So, but a man would say, the father might say, he's fine. He's got a little bump. He's fine. Leave him alone. Men were made to protect. That is their instinct. God gave that to them. God made us different, Scott, male and female. He gave us different the way we think, the way our bodies react, the way our minds react. So when a woman realizes I killed my own child. I allowed an abortionist to kill my baby. She's devastated when she comes to that realization. Some folks, for some women, it's decades because they bury it. When a man realizes I participated in the death of my own child, or even if he didn't, even if he begged her not to do it, or he didn't even know, eventually that catches up to him as well. And he's as well 
devastated because his instinct is to protect, not to kill or harm his own child, his own offspring. No, I hate to, you know, yes, this is about the baby and certainly impacts the woman, no question, but the men are in, in a tough spot as well because of everything you just described. But yeah, we're also told to, to sit down and shut up. We do not have a voice in the conversation. We don't have a uterus, so we can't have an opinion. Uh, and so Guy is really in a tough spot because he has those natural instincts that you described. Maybe he does have an opinion, that sort of thing. But he has he is told by the culture, zip it. Don't say anything. It's up to her. You don't need a uterus to know abortion is wrong. You don't need a uterus to know that abortion kills the unborn. And that man that I told you about who... Who he said, maybe if I'd opened my mouth and, and, and told my wife, no, I don't want you to do this. Maybe it would have made a difference. Maybe it wouldn't have. But now here I am 59 years old without any children and no brothers and sisters, no parents. I'm basically an orphan with no family. And now I live with the fact that I will never know if opening my mouth would have made a difference. I kept my mouth shut because I believed the lie that I had no right to say anything. And that's where men have got to shift their paradigms. They have every right to say something, Scott, every right. But society, the abortion industry, including our own government, who's in bed with the abortion industry and politicians who are lining, they're getting their pockets lined um, by the abortion industry, are using the same propaganda towards men to convince them you need to shut your mouth. This has nothing to do with you. Look, it's Right now, we're, we're dealing with this transgender stuff. I just saw an interview today with a 32-year-old um, man who transitioned as a woman as a teenager. And here's what he said. They don't want you to know the truth of the damage this has done to people like me. I was a child when I was allowed to do this to myself. Now I can do nothing to change it. It's the same thing in the abortion industry. They're not showing all the bad part in the, in the transitioning stuff, just like they don't want to show the bad part of what abortion does to people. It's big business, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. And that so is something bottom that line for them. It's, it's money. This is not about women's health. It's not about women's rights. It's about greed. It's demonic. It's wicked. It's about money. Yep. Yep. I agree. Um, what do you say? And you kind of referenced this a moment ago. Um, what about the woman that says, not me, I don't regret my abortion. I don't know what you're talking about, Vic. I have no clue. Oh, there's, there's those, there's, there's plenty of those. They're not the, they're not the majority. They are a small minority. I'll give you an example of one. Um, this one woman, when I was writing my book, my first book, and I was interviewing women for that book, she said, I don't want to, she set up a time to meet with me to interview. And she goes, I just want you to know, I didn't come here to interview with you. I just came here to tell you, how dare you? How dare you write a book that says abortion harms women? It does not. I had an abortion 30 years ago. It's never affected my life. And she was one of the angriest women I've ever met. And, and I just let her go on and go on and go on. And she never had more children. She never got married. She was in her, I don't know, probably late 50s, 60s at that time. And she was just venom. And I just sat there looking at her thinking, 
lady, you have no idea how much this abortion has affected your life. If you weren't this angry, I might believe you. But the reason you're this angry and you've never, ever been married, you've never had more children. You, She told me she doesn't have anything to do with anybody in her family. I mean, she was one isolated, very angry person. So I believe there are those women who can try to convince others it did not harm them in any way. But I think eventually it will come out or it's already come out in ways that they behave. They just haven't recognized it yet. Scott, I'm convinced the majority of people who are adamantly pro-choice either had an abortion or someone they love that's close to them had an abortion. And if they change sides, so to speak, or even, even start researching or even contemplate listening to someone like me, reading one of my books, investigating the truth, they would have to condemn themselves or that person they love. So it's easier to just say, I'm pro-choice. Does that make sense? Hell yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that uh, you are on something there. Um, in, in the time that we have left, and you know, you, uh, you've helped thousands of people at retreats, things like that. You mentioned the books that you've written. This might seem like an obvious question, but I want you to, to talk about it a little bit. Is there, it sounds, it sounds like there's not a time limit on, uh, you know, gee, after 20 years, uh, you, you, it, it gets better. You don't deal with it anymore. The pain's gone. If I can just suppress it here for another five years, then it'll go away. It doesn't work like that, huh? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, Scott. I've had women in my retreats who've had abortions over four decades ago, who had abortions um, even before Roe v. Wade, who've had abortions since Roe v. Wade, decades and decades. I, I had one, gosh, Scott, um, she came to me. I was speaking in Wyoming and it was at a pregnancy center banquet. I speak at a lot of those, their fundraising banquets. And afterwards, she walked to me and said, could I talk to you? She was in her 60s. I, I don't know exactly, but I know she was probably in her maybe early 70s, beautiful woman. And she took me to the side. Happens all the time, Scott. So I knew she was going to probably share an abortion story with me. And she said, I had no idea what this was going to be about this dinner. My friend's husband couldn't come last minute. So she invited me. And I said, sure, let's have a girl's night. She didn't tell me anything else. I come here, you shared about your abortion story, you shared about grieving the loss of your child, and you shared about this abortion recovery that you do. And she's crying by now. She said, thank you for giving me permission to grieve. 42 years ago, I chose abortion. And every time I've wanted to cry and grieve about it, I've stopped myself because I've said to myself, you don't have any right to cry or grieve, you're the one who chose. So how dare you cry over it? So I grabbed her hands and I said, I am so sorry for your loss. She said, it was losses. They were twin girls and I was never able to have children again. The only children I was ever given, I killed. Can you please tell me how to get help? I had one recently as two months ago. It was also over 40 years for her. She had never ever told anyone, found out about me through an interview I did, came through the retreat and said, I haven't even told my children, but I can't live with this anymore. That happens all the time. So no, there is no time limit. Mm -hmm. I am, I am determined 
Scott, that more people hear about our work at Reassemble so they don't have to wait four decades. You know, when, when women came into my pregnancy centers, because I was an executive director and a CEO of pregnancy centers before I started Reassemble full-time my own non, and founded my own nonprofit, I worked in the nonprofit arena for 24 years. And my, my rule of thumb with my staff and all volunteers was if a woman comes in here and she's adamantly determined to have an abortion, you love her and you treat her with the same respect as someone who's on the fence or someone who'd never do it. Because when she walks out, I want her to feel safe to come back because if she ends up going through with the abortion, she's going to need us. And if she feels condemned and judged, she won't come back and she'll hide in isolation for decades like so many. I want her to come back right away. So I have many who have heard me and they'll now I'm hearing from girls six weeks after. A year after, six months after. I even had one client that I was counseling through um, Zoom during COVID who was pregnant, mom and boyfriend were trying to convince her to do it. And she didn't want to do it. She'd seen the ultrasound. She sent me a picture of the ultrasound. She was excited. She was about 15 weeks pregnant. Then all of a sudden the phone went dead. She stopped calling me. I knew what probably happened. Two months later, she calls me hysterical and told me they pressured her so much. She did it and begging me to get, get her baby back. Get my baby back, Victoria. Please, can you get my baby back? Please, why didn't I listen to you? So I had to help her get through that. And I told her, let's not wait. Let's not wait too long. But she would not have called me back had I judged her on those phone calls. That's exactly right. The website is reassemblelife.com. If you are um, in this situation or if you know of anyone who might be in the situation, you need to check it out. And the book, the books, I should say, are they lie to us and they lie to us too. And you can find those where you uh, get books, amazon.com and, uh, and some of the other common places. Victoria Robinson, thank you so much for joining us here on Dear Jane. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. And I look forward to hearing from your listeners. Please let us help you. You don't have to go another day living in that guilt and that shame. Jesus wants to heal you. And I promise you, he can. I've seen him do it. He's done it for me. Is your marketing plan built to withstand the political, cultural, and spiritual battles you face in the post-row world? The Samaritan Summit exists to help you navigate these new challenges so your message isn't compromised and so you can reach as many abortion-determined women as possible. This year's summit will be in Nashville on September 19th through the 21st. Our workshops will help you confidently assemble your board and leadership team, help you welcome women into your center who are confused by deceptive communication from the abortion industry, and offer courage and support for the myriad new challenges you face after the Dobbs decision last year. Register today to secure your spot at this year's event at SamaritanSummit.org. On this edition of People You Should Know, we introduce you to Sarah Herm. Sarah is passionate about telling her success story with the abortion pill reversal process. As a single mother with three children already, Sarah said she originally chose abortion because of pressure from her new baby's father. When he told me being a 26-year-old mother, four kids, three different dads, that phrase is kind of what drove me to get an abortion um, appointment with Planned Parenthood because those were kind of the thoughts that I was having 
And I was thinking of how society was going to view me. And then him verbalizing it just made it a reality. Sarah says those comments and comments from others made her feel a tremendous amount of shame. Okay, at this point, like this just looks looks awful on paper, you know, Um, 26 years old. I have three kids with two different dads at this point. So this next baby, it's a fourth baby with a different father. Um, I feel like once you get past two um, baby dads, I guess, um, you're, you're, you kind of start to have this, this um, dirty view from people. People kind of stop looking at you as a person and just look at you um, like you don't matter once you kind of hit a certain point in your life. And that's kind of where I was was that was like, you know, I, I don't have any dignity anymore. And that's how people viewed me, at least. And so it was it was definitely um, like shame, guilt. As Sarah began the abortion procedure, she remembers a moment that started to change her thinking. And right as we were getting started, she turned the nurse who was doing the ultrasound. She turned and she looked at me and she goes, you're lucky the heartbeat bill hasn't gone into effect yet. Because if it had, you wouldn't be able to continue. And this obviously is a quote that has like really stuck with me as well. Sarah took the first abortion pill and went home. She says it wasn't long until she started feeling a tremendous amount of guilt. And I started researching or like Googling, you know, what happens if you don't continue the chemical abortion? Can a baby survive a chemical abortion? What happens if I don't take the next pills in the chemical abortion? Things like that. And this hotline popped up and I was like, I don't know, that's California. It looks kind of, honestly, I was like, looks kind of sketchy. I don't know. I've never heard of something like this. So I'll, I'll go to bed. I'll sleep on it. I'll see how I feel in the morning. And the next morning I woke up, I went to the bathroom. I was like, panic set in because I felt like things were starting to take place in my body. So I called the hotline. They answered right away. And asked me where I was at. I told them where I was in Iowa. And they were like, hey, there's a doctor locally. Can you get there this morning? And I was like, yes, I will go. And I went to the doctor's office. He did another ultrasound. And he looked at me and he goes, I can't make any promises. Um, There's a very faint heartbeat. So I feel like we can at least try the progesterone. Um, But again, I can't make promises that we're going to be able to save your baby. And I looked at him and I was like, I don't need promises. I just need hope. So within the next few days, we did some blood work. We did another ultrasound. And after about two or three weeks, he told me, you know, I'm pretty confident that you will be able to carry this baby to term. And then in January of 2019, I gave birth to my youngest a little boy, um, and he's four now. Sarah said it became a matter of realizing that her baby deserved to live. Um, looking at my children and seeing, you know, we don't have the best life, but they have a life. They, I, I'm doing my best to love them. I'm doing my best to provide for them. And they're here running around, giving me hugs, giving me kisses, telling me they love me. And I was just like, why, why, why does this baby not deserve that? Sarah's experiences helped her have empathy towards other women in similar positions. I am definitely pro-life, unapologetically pro-life, but I'm also able to kind of sit down and remember where what I was feeling when I found out I was pregnant. So then I can definitely see like where these women may be coming from. 
where most of them are coming from is, you know, it's, it's panic, it's fear, it's shame, it's guilt, it's uncertainty. Um, and all they really need is a calm voice to tell them it'll be okay. Sarah journaled notes to her baby throughout her pregnancy and has shared them in a book entitled Finding Hope. To learn more, visit Sarah Herm, that's H-U-R-M dot com. My thanks again to Victoria Robinson with Reassemble. If you know of anyone who is struggling with their abortion decision, whether it was two weeks ago or 20 years ago, have them visit reassemblelife.com. Too many people suppress the anguish they feel after an abortion, and that can lead to tremendous isolation. Please know that you are not alone, and the mistakes of your past do not have to define your future. There are millions of people just like you who've made the abortion decision and now struggle in a variety of ways. Feeling like you're the only one makes things worse, and it's absolutely untrue. Thank you for listening to Dear Jane. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition. Our producer is Kate Yule, and our editor is Jacob McCormick. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Dear Jane Podcast. Talk to you soon.